Wayne, thank goodness you're all right. Is everything okay? Honey, I shrunk the audience. Nej, hallo, Sigrid. Hallo, kan du jätte? Jätte, vadå? Helga kommer på besök. What's so good about it? That mask was the only chance I had of finding my son. Chico? Nemo! His name is Nemo! We are all connected in the great circle of life. Hello, my friend, and welcome to the WW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World Information Station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 552, and I'm here once again, not only to help you have the best possible Disney vacation experience, but I also want to bring you a little bit of Disney magic wherever you are, not just with the podcast, but with my live video broadcasts every Wednesday on Facebook, my videos, blogs, special events, books, audio tours, and more. Whether you are a first-time visitor or have been to the parks hundreds of times, you're planning a Walt Disney World vacation or love the history, details, secrets, and stories, there is something here for you. And every week, I'm going to take you from the parks to the screens and everything in between. You can find out more, subscribe to the podcast, and join our community over at www.radio.com. Walt Disney was more than a pioneer in animation, movie making, theme parks, and family entertainment. In fact, Walt Disney was a boy fascinated by futuristic tales of space travel and who would, unbeknownst to many, help the United States imagine the experience and reality of actual space travel. And this week, we're going to explore how Walt and his Imagineers used television to help influence public perception of rockets and space travel through the Disneyland TV specials, including a few that were never actually made, and contribute in a very meaningful way to America's space program. We'll also look at how he inspired and impacted many people, including President Eisenhower, as well as Disney's portrayal of space in feature films and television. We'll then explore the history of space-themed attractions in Disneyland and Walt Disney World, as well as current contributions to and with NASA. I'll then have the answer to our last Walt Disney World trivia question of the week and pose a new challenge for your chance to win a Disney prize package. Then stay tuned to the end of the show. I'll have more information about upcoming WW Radio events, meets of the month, your voicemails, and more. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WW Radio Show. Before our preview of Tomorrowland, I'd like to read these few words of dedication. A vista into a world of wondrous ideas, signifying man's achievement, a step into the future with predictions of constructive things to come. Tomorrow offers new frontiers in science, adventure, and ideals, the atomic age, the challenge of outer space, and the hope for a peaceful and unified world. If I say the name Walt Disney, what comes to mind first? Is it Mickey Mouse or Disneyland or animated features, movies, television, theme parks, maybe entrepreneurship? What if I told you that Walt Disney also helped put a man on the moon 
and a rover on Mars. I'm going to help explain what I mean this week as we discuss Disney and space and just what that really means, including in space, like the real space, in the Disney parks and on screen. And joining me this week is truly a man who you could, I guess you could call him a space cadet, like in real life. And I mean that in the best possible way. He is Ryan Hurley, who I have known for years. First time, I think, on the show. So welcome on, buddy. Thank you very much, Lou. Yeah, it is, uh, it is a pleasure to be on here officially. I think the only other time my voice has been on the show is when I called in from uh, Tokyo Disneyland. Oh, so, that's uh, right. Is- that's right. It was a while back. <laughs> so, uh, yes, no, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, and this so this was actually your idea. We've been talking about, you know, trying to do stuff together for a while. When I said that you were a space kid, that that was not an insult <laughs> to your intellect. Um, it really is because it's who you are and what you do. So sort of tell people a little bit about, um, you know, what it is that you do and why you sort of have this interest and connection to Disney and space as well. Yeah, sure. So uh, I'll, I'll bring it back to, um, you know, I'm, I'm originally from Florida. Uh, one of the, the few people that's originally from Florida. Um, there's like, there's a, like a dozen of us now, I think. Um, <laughs> uh, so, you know, I was at, uh, at uh, Magic Kingdom, I think, in I think when I was like one, but obviously I'm, I, I don't really remember much, but uh, um, yeah, so grew up uh, being a big fan of Disney and a big fan of space travel. Um, my first uh, trip to Kennedy Space Center here in Florida was in fifth grade, um, and uh, I became a annual pass holder in middle school. Uh, so obviously, there's a lot of uh, cross pollination there with with Disney and space. As I as I grew up, I uh, went on to uh, go to college, uh, majoring in aerospace engineering, uh, basically because it had the word space in the name. And uh, uh, got a uh, actually got a degree in aerospace engineering uh, from the University of Florida. I actually got a second degree in mechanical engineering, uh, so that one day I could maybe work at Walt Disney World. Turns out it was the first place I got a job at. So I was an engineer at Walt Disney World for a year, uh, and I did some uh, some awesome projects there. Uh, but I really missed the space. I missed the aerospace aspect of uh, my work. So I went back and got a master's in aerospace and still very slowly working on my PhD, but uh, ended up working for uh, the Navy for six and a half years and then was able to transition over to Kennedy Space Center. Um, I worked for a, uh, um, a contractor there named AI Solutions for two years and then uh, transitioned over to uh, become a NASA civil servant. Uh, not too long ago. So, yes, so I work in the uh, launch services program as a uh, flight software analyst. And uh, so the uh, the, um, launch services program, we're the program that launches all of the the Mars rovers and all of the the NOAA weather satellites and all the uh, the satellites that go to to Saturn and Jupiter. That's all us. So um, that's our that's our main uh, program. But we do a lot of other extra stuff as well there as well. So. I can tell you that this is probably the very first, probably the only time I'm ever going to have a true like rocket scientist on the <laughs> on the show. Um, you know, because when you hear people that wanting to, you know, go into this thing, the first thing I think of is like what you're doing is like space camp, but so much better, except for the fact that Leah Thompson and Kelly Preston weren't there. But other than that, <laughs> you are living the dream in terms of, of doing things to help us 
return to space over and over again. And when I said at the beginning about Walt Disney and his connection to this, you know, I think when if you might see the title, you know, Disney in space, you think about, oh, they're going to talk about mission space. They're going to talk about flight to the moon. But Walt really does deserve and we'll we'll get into how some of the credit for our progress in, in getting onto the moon and and a rover on Mars. And I think it goes back like you to his childhood in terms of having a, a very different, much more fundamental interest in space and these futuristic tales of H.G. Uh, Wells and, and Jules Verne. And I think as time went on, I would imagine he probably read, you know, Princess of Mars and, and John Carter and, and some of the things like uh, Amazing Stories and Astounding Science Fiction, some of those early books and magazines from the, the 30s and 40s and 50s. But what we, he would eventually do is help us, help, you know, obviously uh, the United States and the military realize this this vision of of space travel. So so take us back a little bit to some of those yeah. early beginnings and, and how Disney starts to get involved in this, you know, before they ever start putting anything on film even. Yeah. So, um, uh, and you know, this is, this is the period, I guess, of Walt's life. That's my favorite. This, I guess the, the futurist Walt, uh, phase of, of his life. Um, and, and, uh, this, this all kind of started with, um, a group of scientists, American scientists that were, um, uh, several of them actually from Germany in the post-World War II era, uh, the, including, uh, let's see, Dr. Fred Whipple, uh, Dr. Joseph Kaplan, uh, Dr. Heinz uh, Haber, uh, who eventually uh, became the uh, chief science consultant at uh, Walt Disney Productions, actually. Uh, Willie Lay and uh, Dr. Warner Von Braun, of course, the, the father of American rocketry. Uh, they all wrote a series of articles in a magazine called uh, Collier's Magazine back in the uh, early to mid fifties and basically describing how human space travel could work. And they were, they were trying to get this concept out into the public and, and try to get the, uh, um, the American uh, psyche to kind of, you know, get behind this, this concept. Well, uh, one of those people was of course, uh, Walt Disney and uh, Walt uh, appointed one of his uh, nine old men, Ward Kimball, uh, he was, uh, he needed him to produce some Tomorrowland episodes for the uh, Disneyland TV show. So, uh, of course, what, uh, what better, uh, way to, uh, create some, some, uh, some shows for, uh, Tomorrowland than, uh, to do some space themed ones. So, uh, so Ward got together with, uh, uh, Dr. Von Braun's, uh, people there in, uh, uh, Huntsville, Alabama. So wait, but uh, before you go on, I, I want to stop you for a second because we keep mentioning the name Warner Von Braun and sure. that may that may be a name that is is or not very familiar or one that people have heard before and I think it's important to touch just for a second on a little bit of his history because like Walt, he was sure. inspired by Jules Verne but, you know, one of the reasons why that name is, is so familiar was because he was a German scientist during the the Second World War, and then eventually would go on to design the the V two rocket right. for Germany. While he was continuing to think of of you know futuristic space travel, but after the war ended, uh, von Braun and some of these other 
German uh, rocket engineers and experts, after they surrendered and emigrated from Germany, they came to actually work for the U.S. Army, I think originally in in Texas, right before they went over to, to Huntsville? Yeah, eventually they ended up picking Huntsville, surprisingly, because uh, he said that Huntsville, Alabama, reminded him most of his home in Germany. <laughs> so uh, that's that's a yeah, I was I thought that was really cute when I found that out uh, several years ago. But um, uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, so no, I talk about Dr. Von Braun as if you know he's everybody knows him, but yes, he's he really is the the father of American rocketry. Uh, he would go on to lead. Um, uh, just basically entire development all the way until the moon landing and through the moon landing, I should say. So uh, yeah, yeah, he was the, the chief designer of the V2 rocket. That was the most successful rocket of that era. And then uh, after World War II, yeah, we were you know, lucky enough to uh, be able to uh, utilize his skills uh, here in the uh, United States. And really, it was it was um, it was interesting to see where, you know, he was working for the army, uh, and this was a time this was before NASA, right? So we'll clarify that too. This is this is before there was ever a human spaceflight program. This was the very early beginnings of of rocketry and what could rockets do. Uh, they were still trying to figure that out. So and less um, from a defensive point of view than an explore an, an exploratory point of view, right? Yeah, yeah. Could these be used not just as as weapons, uh, as they were originally designed under, um, you know, during World War II, but could they be used for human exploration? And they were thinking about this very, very early on. So, um, uh, so so much so that even back in 1954, uh, Walt Disney uh, actually met with uh, Werner von Braun uh, in uh, Huntsville, Alabama, at the Redstone Arsenal there. And uh, he was uh, uh, showing off one of his uh, Model V2 rockets uh, in the background and, and kind of showing Walt some of the ideas that he had for uh, human uh, exploration of space. Yeah, and it's interesting as as time had gone on and the especially this country's fascination with science fiction, you know, it, it was a perfect uh, alignment of our collective uh, um interest in in space exploration and being able to channel that science or, or space fiction into what would eventually sort of become space fact and and trying to get people not only into space but out to the moon as well yeah yeah and that's actually that's kind of a tagline that they used for these uh these disneyland specials was uh they kind of akin to the the true life adventure series uh they kind of coined the these as a uh, science factual not science fiction but science factual um specials so uh yeah so there's three specials in total uh the first one was man in space um this was more um just how to get humans into orbit um basically the history of rocketry all the way up to how how could they do that even in the mid 50s here to introduce you to this new series is Walt Disney. In our modern world, everywhere we look, we see the influence science has upon our daily lives. Discoveries that were miracles a few short years ago are accepted as commonplace today. Many of the things that seem impossible now will become realities tomorrow. One of a man's oldest dreams has been the desire for space travel, to travel to other worlds. 
Until recently, this seemed to be an impossibility. But great new discoveries have brought us to the threshold of a new frontier, the frontier of interplanetary space. In this Tomorrowland series, we are combining the tools of our trade with the knowledge of the scientists to give a factual picture of the latest plans for man's newest adventure. Here's Director Ward Kimball to tell you about it. I'll mention that was that was 1955, uh, mid 1955. Uh, the second one was Man and the Moon that came out the end of 1955. Uh, obviously, um, more geared towards how to get to the moon. And that one, it didn't go all the way to landing on the moon, but it did have a whole, um, you know, how to orbit and do reconnaissance of the moon. And then the third one was called Mars and Beyond. And uh, it's funny with with these, you know, they're they're all available on uh, DVD, if or they're they're available out on on YouTube as well. If you want to go watch these, they're they're really quite fascinating, especially the the first one um, because of how accurate uh, that they were on so many of the uh, the design pieces of how to. Uh, how to design a rocket, how to, uh, the operation of a rocket, and then even what the, um, the capsule, what the crew would be doing once in orbit. Uh, it's really quite fascinating. Um, uh, so, so I wanted to give some additional context here too. So, so March 1955, the first Disneyland special comes out. Uh, in July, Disneyland opens. And then uh, in later in, in 55, the second one comes out. In 57, the third one comes out. Then Sputnik launches uh, also in 1957 in October. Uh, Explorer 1, the first American uh, satellite, launches in 58. And then NASA isn't even created until July of uh, 58, in the middle of 58. So this was at a time when all of this early, early space travel um, concepts were, were really, you know, uh, just, just bubbling up to the surface and Disney was, was right there. Uh, just, uh, it's, it's really quite amazing. It really is. I mean, they're, they're kind of step back and, and like you, like you mentioned Lou in, in your intro there, that, that he really was, um, right there, uh, at, with all of this. So, yeah, you know, history looks back on Disney as, as not just a person who, was an innovator in terms of of filmmaking and family entertainment, but even his influence on science, on space travel, on on urban planning, and the things that he did, and yep. how they translated into other areas beyond the scope of the entertainment realm. And I and I thought Man in Space actually, and and I'm sure a lot of people haven't seen it, and you should you should go back and you can find it on on YouTube. This is not something that was a, you know, five to seven minute animated short film. It ran about an hour long and total nerd fact for people who are of my generation. One of the people who I think did most of the narrations was Dick Tufield, who is actually known as the voice of the robot in Lost in Space, which was one of my favorite shows as a kid. I, I won't do my bad Dr. Smith impression <laughs> yet. It, it'll probably come out. But it was actually um, nominated for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Short. And what I, I think the important thing to tie in here, too, from a Disney perspective is this was a combination of documentary footage as well as animation. So it was not a very sort of 
deep, heavy-handed type of uh, scientific, um, uh, you know, something you you you'd want it you'd have to see uh, as a kid in class. But it was meant to be very lighthearted, and it was yeah. the history of of rocketry and satellites, and what what one of these first astronauts would have to experience the very first time they would travel up in in a real rocket not one of the ones they had seen in you know flash gordon films of the 20s and 30s yeah they did a really good job of making this uh these concepts because obviously you know it's kind of a joke right you know it's not rocket science yeah so this was rocket science but they had to make it digestible for the American public, right? So uh, they talk about the history of rocketry on Earth, uh, you know, the evolution of going from gunpowder to even steam to liquid fuel, um, the German rocket development uh, creating the V2, and then the post-World War II American rocket development uh, creating several different models. Uh, and then Willie Lay explains the uh, modern rocket launch operations to the Disney animators. They talk about two-stage and three-stage rocket designs, uh, which are still the basic rocket designs that are used today. Uh, they talk about orbital mechanics and how basically the concept of, you know, if you go faster, then you can stay in orbit or you can, you know, you can go further downrange. And if you go fast enough, you can just actually just get into orbit. Um, you know, they also talk about what kind of details would be on satellites and also, again, very close to what we have today. Uh, Heinz Haberd uh, presents a section on space medicine or what NASA refers to today as the human research program, basically the issues that humans will face while in uh, space travel. A lot of the same questions that we are still working on today. Uh, Werner von Braun then uh, talks about uh, some of the training options for current test pilots and future astronauts. Um, this is at a time when uh, flight simulators were very early on in their uh, use. Uh, that's actually stuff that I worked on for the Navy. Uh, so it was really cool to see, you know, even back in the fifties that they were, that they were using, uh, flight simulators. Uh, of course, Star Tours tech eventually <laughs> that, you know, it works its way in there. Um, and it even talks about a design of a fourth, a four stage rocket. Uh, so when I say four stages, basically the concept that you have, um, how many pieces the rocket will break apart into. So the first stage is on the bottom, and then uh, sometimes uh, you'll have two stages where it's just it breaks in half. The idea is that you dispose of weight as you go up. Uh, so, uh, But a, he talks about a four-stage rocket. There's never been a four-stage rocket, and he was talking about this back in the 50s, so nobody's even figured that out yet. Um, but uh, his fourth-stage rocket actually had a space shuttle orbiter-type uh, glider uh, for the crew vehicle on top. So something that, uh, and a concept that they would go, then go on to use, you know, that would uh, eventually launch in the eighties. Um, they actually do an entire animated rocket launch simulation with a six person crew. Again, a la the space shuttle orbiter. Uh, they launch out of a Pacific Atoll, uh, which we still use today. Um, and I, uh, I use a mobile launch uh, that we, uh, a mobile launcher that uh, something again that we still use today, uh, the Atlas uh, launch vehicle and both and the uh, space launch system, the SLS. Uh, once that gets uh, off the ground here, probably next year ish, uh, that'll also use a mobile launcher. Um, they talk about using blockhouses. So going back in the day, they would, you know, they didn't have um, the mission controllers like. Uh, in a really safe place, you know, miles and miles away, they were in little bunkers that were right outside the launch pad. And um, you can actually still see them over at the Cape today. And, uh, you know, nature's kind of 
taken some of them back, but uh, it's it's amazing to see how close they used to be. The thing that, yeah. that I'm sorry, the thing that fascinated me about all this too is the relationship of Von Braun and Disney and, and just how many, I think, similarities there were between the two in terms of being so forward thinking and futuristic. I mean, I read articles where Von Braun had been referred to as the Walt Disney of the space industry and in terms of not just wanting to inspire interest in space travels, but the utilization of the power of television um, and, and even sort of was a technical advisor, you know, off camera as well. And, I think the the marriage of the two, like you you had mentioned, that they the Disney's artists created this very sort of dramatic animation of what this four stage rocket would look like, right? The the perfect people to bring his vision to life. He also had the Disney artists build models of some of the vehicles for the three shows. But then Walt also wanted to make sure that you said it was something going to be very easy, easily digestible. So he made sure that he incorporated uh, humor into some of the science. He said there's got to be a comedy interest and the factual interest that have to, you know, be married together. So the show, the show isn't dry and or corny. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, actually, the, what comes to mind immediately is that uh, that space medicine uh, sequence or the the, the human research program uh, sequence, where uh, it kind of shows all of the stresses that uh, that a human would encounter uh, going through space, and you know, it's the the whole you know how many G's would they feel? So, you know, the, there's a guy, you know, there's an animated guy in a in a in a box, and then it just drops a bunch of like anvils on him, like a <laughs> <laughs> you know, the old, uh, old cartoons. Um, uh, and then also the, the history of rocketry, there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, showing how rockets were used, um, you know, in, you know, uh, let's just call it, uh, yeah, a thousand, no, yeah, man, not quite a thousand years ago, uh, say a, uh, 700 years ago. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, it's been, uh, uh, it, they they do you you are very, absolutely correct. They do a very good job of, of making it not just a lot of information, but uh, enjoyable to to watch. It's it's the edutainment, right? It's right. it's that term that that uh, even when I was uh, a cast member, that I mean that was something that uh, you know was was taught to us. So uh, it is it is definitely present in these in these specials. And it was incredibly impactful for the time. So remember, this is something that, that aired in March 1955 when, when TV was really starting to hit its heyday. This did not just reach a small amount of the population. They estimated that 42 million people saw this very first man in space, like you said, science factual piece of the series so much so and it didn't just spark an interest in space and space travel beyond the confines of you know amazing stories in science fiction but even president eisenhower who screened it for officials at the pentagon not long thereafter announces approval of plans to start launching you know satellites and really helping to kick the space program into high gear and i and i don't think ryan that was very much a coincidence in terms of the timing. No, I, I, you're absolutely right. Yeah, this was, yeah, this was that time where, 
Uh, and obviously, Walt Disney was a household name at the time as well. So to have someone with his, let's call it clout, uh, really, you know, getting behind this movement, uh, it really helped with the entire, the entire process to really get the, the American public to uh, get behind this, uh, this race for space. And I think that's part of the reason why the timing of the second episode of the second film, which was Man in the Moon, aired in December of that same year. This one was actually narrated by Paul Fries. So watch it even just for the narration. <laughs> you know him obviously from countless Walt Disney World theme park attractions, not the least of which is, is Haunted Mansion. He was also Professor Ludwig von Drake as well. And this one, like you said, is different. This is about some of the the myths and the mysteries and the superstitions about the moon, including that they that there's this sort of weird uh, um, leaving the left hind foot of a rabbit in the graveyard during the dark of the moon. <laughs> like there's a lots of weird stuff, but it very much was a little bit more of a, a humorous look at it and how the 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 moon features in uh, history and literatures and superstitions yes. and obviously futuristic research going forward yeah they do they do talk a lot about in this one the uh so it, i guess in a similar fashion of how rockets uh rocketry through history on earth in the, in the first one this one they they do uh discuss the impact that the moon has had in human civilization uh, through, you know, art and, uh, and all kinds of aspects. So, um, and, and the, <laughs> the aspect too with this one that I enjoyed is the, uh, so where in the first one they did like an animated rocket launch simulation here, they actually use live action actors and, and everything. And, uh, it is, it's, it's really quite, uh, it's interesting. It's, a, <laughs> um, it's interesting to see the, the way that they uh, they utilize the crew vehicle, um, it is it is it does seem more of like um, uh, I would say more of like a like a helicopter uh, crew or something that that's flying around the moon. And of course, this is at a time when humans have never flown in space ever, so uh, that's maybe the closest thing that they had to work off of um, as far as a concept of how they would move around and what kind of roles that they would all have inside. Um, and of course, like you're saying, the, uh, you know, they 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 start to, uh, get maybe a little bit into, in the science fiction realm where, you know, what is that on the moon? Is that, is that some, Oh, no, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that was something. I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it was, um, and, and this one obviously also included, uh, Von Braun, as well as Ward Kimball. We, we mentioned his name briefly earlier. Just as a very quick aside, if you don't know the name Ward Kimball, you, you should. He was at one of Walt's nine old men. He was uh, received uh, multiple Academy Awards, and his work on goes back to Snow White and Pinocchio and Fantasia and Caballeros and Cinderella and Mary Poppins and everything in between, as well as um, some uh, attractions as well. Uh, definitely one of the more unique and and interesting of of, of Walt's um, nine old men, but I think he helped to strike that balance between the realistic trip to the moon and some of that 
whimsical, fantastical, borderline yeah. science fiction parts. Yeah, and, and what a workhorse too. I mean, it, like, I mean, directed, written, hosted, narrated. Uh, th- this this guy did it all with these um, with these specials. So, um, yeah, it's really quite impressive. And uh, and yeah, he was in, involved in all three of these and all you know, kind of the next step out of those uh, those original Collier's Magazine articles. So yeah, and then the the next one being that that Mars and Beyond which came out in uh, at the December 4th, 1957. This one, and this one's interesting too, because it, in, in where with the man in the moon, it starts to get a little bit maybe sci-fi uh, Mars and beyond, I would say goes uh, even more so, but they kind of had to, because like they, they discuss about how, you know, they're back then they still thought that there was canals on, on Mars, you know, that there were, there were people who still, still thought that, you know, that you had little green men and, and, and Martians and everything like that, that, that was still, you know, that was still kind of a, a, a theory that was out there, you know? So, uh, they, they came up with some really creative aspects, <laughs> with in, this one. including, um, Walt himself introducing this with his yeah. little robot friend, Garko. Yes, which I, I wasn't. Didn't they use part of that um, in the uh, Space Mountain queue back in the day? I, I can't remember if they did. And it was one of like uh, it was back when they did the Space Mountain in like the '90s, where they had like all the random clips up on the uh, screen in the queue. I think so. I, like I remember seeing that. Yeah, there. I think so too. But uh, yeah, it was it was definitely getting more into the, and of course the idea too would be that. You know, Mars and beyond, this would be the third step, which we're still still working on it. Um, <laughs> that, uh, that you know, this would be further out into the future. So, you know, hey, maybe we all do have, uh, you know, uh, robot uh, servants around the house <laughs> to help us do our, our chores. So. According to the 50s, that's what everybody had. You know, we all had a Rosie the Robot from the Jetsons. Yeah. I'm still waiting for that in my flying car and jetpack and, and all that Um <laughs> We're working on it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's actually interesting. And I don't know if you've ever been there, but if you go to um, the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco, they actually have a number of exhibits and artifacts from the the Man in Space series, including oh, really? uh, over That's in Galaxy fantastic. 9. Yeah, Gallery 9, they have um, these uh, tablets that kids can use to, that reflects, um, you know, Walt's interest in this. And there's pictures of Walt and and the Moonliner attraction, as as well as one of the manuscripts written by Ward Kimball, which describes the making of the episodes of the series, including the the challenges that they faced as they undertook this this burden to a certain degree of not just introducing and engaging, but also entertaining the American public about the real life wonders and potential futures of, of space travel. That's, that's really cool. I, the last time I was there was literally like, it was like the week before they opened the, uh, the family museum. So I definitely need to get back out there. You, you absolutely, um, you absolutely do. It's, it is worth, you know, going to, you can spend an entire day there literally and still not see everything. It's, it's wonderful, well done. And uh, it, it very, very, if you, if you don't cry at some point at the family museum, you're doing it completely (laughs) wrong. Um, And before we actually move past these films, there were actually, although this, those three sort of ended 
this this run of films. There actually was supposed to be uh, additional films that were part of this series um, that he opted not to do. He did an interview in, in 1961 on the Wonderful World of Color show saying that he couldn't do them and the, these Tomorrowland-ish space shows because they were just too expensive. Um, but there was going to be three more that at, that got canceled at different stages of development. One was called The Vanguard Project. The other was mm. called The UFO Show. And the third was going to be called The NASA Show. So had you ever heard of had you ever heard of any of those? No, I mean the Vanguard is a uh, that's a uh, launch vehicle uh, that was developed um, later on. Um, obviously, I could only I could only imagine what a uh, what a UFO, <laughs> uh, UFO show would have would have turned into. Yeah. Um, so my understanding was that uh, this Project Vanguard was going to be part of a new space program from the National Academy of Sciences and the Naval Research Research Laboratory. Von Braun was working on a project for the army known as Redstone with an Explorer yep. satellite. And obviously the, the government backed this, this project, uh, project Vanguard because it seemed to be more scientific than, than military based. Um, and so there were, there were plans to create this series about project Vanguard and supposedly it, it was storyboarded. There was lots of notes. These from what, you know, legend has, are actually in the Disney archives, um, but it's not something I have ever seen before. The UFO show was going to sort of almost be the 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 sequel to Mars and Beyond because at the end of that show, you see this set of flying saucers kind of zooming across the screen. It was almost like um, like an end credit scene for <laughs> for what was was going to come next. And this is one of the things that. Uh, not just Walt, but Ward Kimball was very, very interested in. Um, he put those flying saucers in this beyond section for a lot of reasons because he wanted it to not just be part of this science factual, but he wanted it to be interesting and capitalized to a certain degree on this UFO sci-fi mania of the time. So there was, this, again, that that balance between what was happening in in short-term realism and this idea of of what was coming in the future not just in terms of what we were doing but what literally might be coming to the planet um in in the future um and he actually spoke years later like in in the late 70s early 80s he spoke at a mufon convention and the mufon is the mutual ufo network it's it's wow that yeah so if you know mufon i was a big ufo nerd back like, when i was a kid <laughs> so i know what mufon it was a an organization that investigated ufo sightings so uh, Ward went and spoke there, and by the same token, Walt was also contacted by the Air Force to do a documentary about UFOs, and they said originally that they were going to supply UFO footage, and then uh, eventually they said, you know what, we're going to just redact all that, and just, <laughs> we're going to black it all out, and we, we, don't have, we don't have any UFO footage, don't worry about any of those bright lights over, you know, anywhere, Um so they did start to to work on it. They didn't have access to some of that um, information. I guess the closest that Disney ever got to his UFO special were the Flying Saucers attraction in Tomorrowland, which lasted, you know, four or five years or so. <laughs> um, and then the last one was going to be 
the the NASA show, which was going to about ten years after the initial Man in Space show, once again, uh, Von Braun wanted to. Um, I think he felt sort of of held back by the interest or lack thereof about uh, you know putting a man on the moon and and looked to Disney again to try and and generate interest um, in terms of of. of fostering this idea of of space travel um again at this point he is now i think he said he was the director of the space flight center right over yes. in in huntsville so he had a position of authority and it might have been a good time to start working with walton and his brother roy um who came and visited them um, he went to huntsville walton roy went to huntsville i think they also went to um it, it used to be called cape, cape kennedy cape canaveral and um, Houston as well in terms of of looking to um, bring this to the attention of the American public. And obviously the only person that could really do it and do it properly was going to be Walt Disney. Yeah, that's, that's, wow, that's really fascinating. I know, yeah, I knew that he had uh, returned in 65 uh, to meet up with uh, Von Braun once again uh, there in Huntsville. And uh uh, of course, you know, this is also uh, the unfortunate passing of, of Walt that next year, I think probably uh, unfortunately delayed any of the, you know, potential future plans that uh, that they could have worked on together. Um, because, uh, you know, I think without uh, without Walt, you know, really to, to be there to, to push this concept of, uh, of you know, educating the, the American people about this, uh, you know, it was... Um, I think it, uh, you know, the, the, the plants unfortunately just couldn't work out. So, um, but, uh, it wouldn't be the, the last time that we see, uh, anything space related in, in Disney films or, or TV or anything though. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, the, the thing is, I think, you know, I don't want to under, um, undersell the impact of, of these three shows that I think maybe even a lot of, modern Disney fans have might not know about, maybe have never seen before, and the influence and the inspiration that they have. You know, we talked about the space program and Eisenhower, um, how Von Braun, you know, brought Disney over to um, uh, the Space Center in Huntsville. And I think not just inspired other people who watched those shows and probably countless astronauts who was like, yeah, that's exactly what I want to do and probably en- ended up doing that. I know um, one of the the astronauts, uh, Stephen Bales, talked about how um, seeing these shows when he was 13 really sort of ticked all the boxes for him and he was a member of Mission Control for the Apollo 11 moon landing and I'm sure his story is one of many's but you're right i mean it it what it did start to do was usher in a new era especially from the disney perspective of entertainment somewhat maybe based or not based in science fiction science factual that started not long after and those um those entertainment offerings took place not just on the big screen but on the small screen as well yeah, yeah. There's a there's a a long list of of Disney um, films and and TV shows that have uh, at least whether it's it's blatantly uh, space travel related or at least some sort of uh, connection 
So um, I, I've got a list here. <laughs> I haven't seen all of these. So I'm, I'm going to rely on, on you for some of these. So I figured I'd just run down the list here and, and let's see if you can uh, supplant with that any additional knowledge on any of these. So see, the first one I got here is called Moon Pilot from 1962. So I will admit, I admittedly have never seen nor I had heard of Moon Pilot. I, I didn't. My research as a good recovering attorney um, should be was based on a uh, on a novel that and this was, again, this idea of a a flight to the moon that was uh, about to happen. And an Air Force captain has to keep this a secret. But this mysterious girl comes to uh, meets up with him and tells him way more than she should know about the upcoming mission. And we find out that she actually is an alien, a friendly alien, not like those, the people from V who were disguised, not nice people at all. Um, and wants to help him with this special paint formula that'll safeguard his rocket and his body and his brain wow. from these weird proton rays um so again it it takes into account this idea of of us starting to venture out into space and who else might be out there or here already um they walk among us uh, it in um in terms of what and but again think about this was definitely reflective of disney's interest in the in the space program as well as you know this this is right in the time of uh, Kennedy's, you know, we choose to go to the moon, you know, which, which happens a little bit later in the sixties. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It sounds like this is, this is kind of in that, that same concept of that, uh, science factual, uh, kind of era of, uh, let's, let's have a lot of science factual mixed in with a little science fiction. So that's very cool. How about, uh, escape to Witch mountain? And of course, race to Witch mountain, the 2009 sequel with you know, anything with, with Dwayne Johnson, I have to watch. So, so this is not the Dwayne Johnson. This is the 19th. <laughs> this, listen, there's only one Witch Mountain, and it's 1975, and it's Eddie Albert as, as um, Father O'Day and, and Donald Pleasance uh, in there as well. There was also the return to Witch Mountain. Many years later, there was Beyond Mitch, Witch Mountain, and then they remade them back in uh, 95. I, I think they remade Escape to Witch Mountain, and then the, the film race to race to witch mountain starring the rock which i think everything right now stars the rock he's in every <laughs> single movie yes. that is that is being made um but i remember seeing escape to witch mountain um as a kid and and being fascinated by it and it's funny as we were going through this list i'm like i need to find that again i need to watch that again and see if it holds up um today much the way it did you know when i was a kid i'm afraid to go back and watch the hardy boys and nancy drew mysteries because i love those as a kid and i don't want to, i don't want it to ruin my memories <laughs> of them i'm afraid to do the same thing with uh with escape to witch mountain and the, you know the next one you have on your list is the uh the classic and i'm using air quotes the cat from outer space yeah. Uh, so uh, a UFO that makes an emergency landing on Earth and its occupant turns out to be a cat-like alien uh, starring uh, Ken Berry and Sandy Duncan. The voice of Jake the Cat was provided by a comedian and cartoon voice actor Ronnie Schell. So, uh, yeah, I uh, again, this is this was before my time. Uh, I was born in 82. So uh, I, but I, I, I kind of get the concept of of 
the era of this of this film. There's there's I'm noticing some some trends here with these late '70s films. Listen, this is like it's the first appearance of a flurkin was in 1978. Um, <laughs> you know, this again. I was I was 10 years old back then, and. It was a science fiction, obviously comedy film as well, but really starred a lot of A-ish, A-minus-ish stars from the era. So you mentioned Sandy Duncan, Harry Morgan from MASH, Roddy McDowell, McLean Stevenson, very, very popular in, in movies and on TV. I don't know. I have not got, I have not seen this probably since I was 10 years old. But the next one on the list, man, is the one that... You know, I have circled and highlighted and I am going to invite, welcome and or strap my son to the chair to make him watch in the next coming weeks. And it is, of course, 1979's The Black Hole. Yeah. And and I uh, I knew that this one was uh, one of your favorites. I, I've heard you mention this movie, if, if not, uh, if not a handful of times, then a lot more than that. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, this this is definitely a classic for sure. And look, this this is one that, and and I almost feel like I need to do an episode on the black hole because look, it's 1979. We're talking about space and travel. There was a little film a couple years earlier called Star Wars, which really clearly, obviously, I don't need to overstate the obvious. It changed cinematic history and and our interest and perception of space. This was not just a movie about a black hole, but it was a literal and figurative. Very, very dark film in a lot of ways. That ending with Maximilian was just freaky, man. But it also, it it, it starred people like Anthony Perkins and Ernest Borgnine, who I loved, by the way. Mikhail's Navy, Roddy McDowell, um, Slim Pickens was the voice of one of the robots. And wow. you may or may not know who Slim Pickens is, but I look, I have my Vincent doll and my Vincent Funko Pop, and my, and my Vincent collectible and my Vincent Funko Pop upon <laughs> the shelves behind me. It was a beautifully done film obviously you know not about the the realities of space travel but the futures of space travel and maximilian shell was just phenomenal and weird and scary and creepy as as um as the villain but it it's definitely one that they they talked about remaking for years but there was actually Mm. there was actually going to be a black hole attraction at some point too that never came to be but um yeah, so we, we move forward from the, the darkness that, that is the black hole into some of the lighter um, and, and more interesting space and futuristic themed films as well. Yeah, so the next one I have on my list is called uh, The Unidentified Flying Oddball, or also known as The Spaceman and King Arthur. Um, this was a comedy. Uh, it sounds like something that's pretty uh, satirical. Um, it was a uh, concept was uh, an astronaut and his android double travel back in time of King Arthur. Uh, you can you can pretty much guess where this one goes. <laughs> um, this starred uh, Dennis Duncan or Duggan uh, as uh, astronaut Tom Trimble, who unintentionally travels back in time with his lookalike android Hermes. Uh, so yes, there's there's that one, and I, I guess we should mention Tron from '82. Uh, while not necessarily space themed, there's definitely uh, some connection with um, uh, obviously the uh, the color scheme, let's call it, of uh, of the uh, the Tron universe. Um, and uh, this is in an era of, of uh, computers uh, 
so I work in flight software. So uh, this was at a time where, where computer technology was was really starting to take off. Uh, no pun intended there. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and this is, you know, and it's funny because I was actually talking to my son about this in the car the other day in terms of what this meant for Disney as a studio, because this really was the first ever use of computer generated graphics. And the th- my memory of seeing the light cycles on that grid were very much akin to the first time I saw a Star Destroyer when I saw Star Wars just a few years earlier. So this was meant to be the beginning of of their franchise um, to not compete with Star Wars, but but be something in that same realm. It, it existed on the grid as opposed to in space, and I'm still holding out hope of hopes for a third star for a third Tron film. You and if you have not seen the Tron light cycle run attraction, uh, just wait till it comes to Magic Kingdom. Yeah, and I, I was listening to the Tron Legacy uh, soundtrack earlier. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah, fantastic uh, franchise. Yeah, definitely looking forward to another one there. Um, uh, next one I got on my list here is Flight of the Navigator. Uh, this I think I did see this uh, when I was pretty young. This was '86. Um, what are your what are your uh, memories of Flight of the Navigator? They were they're not very strong. I have not seen this film probably since I was let's see, seventeen eighteen when when the movie came out. So um, I, I would need to see this one again because I, I think it very much fits in a, a, a sweet spot of nostalgia for people who were born in the late seventies, maybe even early eighties. But I, I don't have a lot of memories of Flight of the Navigator. Um, one thing that I guess is interesting with the, um, the plot line is that, so the concept is that a a boy is abducted by an alien spaceship and he's gone, uh, for eight years. Uh, but when he comes back, uh, he's still the same age, but everyone else is aged eight years. So in terms of astrophysics, um, that theory could actually take place is, is the concept of that. If you, uh, if a, a, a body were to move um, at the, the speed of light, basically, that time basically comes to a standstill. So uh, in, they, I think they, the idea was they, they took that concept and then they turned it into a plot line for the film. It's, so. it, it looks like it's one I have to I have to touch back on um, yeah. again. Uh, so uh, I would be remiss also not to mention Buzz Lightyear, of course, uh, named after Buzz Aldrin. Uh, uh, Toy Story fame. Have you seen the Toy Story movies? I, I have, and I'm very curious to see what Toy Story Four is going to be because that because it seemed like the perfect trilogy, and yet here we are with the fourth film. So I'm very curious to see what comes next and what yeah. story needed to be told. Um, but yeah, again, the the connection here just with with Buzz Aldrin, um, and and obviously we we've talked in the past I, when I had Duncan Wardle on the show, he talked about how. They actually had a Buzz Lightyear, his son's Buzz Lightyear action figure um, going up on one of the space shuttles and actually coming back down, too. Yeah, yeah, I believe it made its way up to the space station. So, uh, yeah, I think I've got that picture saved somewhere. Yeah, that's very, very cool to see see Buzz Lightyear actually in space. Um, Next one I've got on my list here is Rocket Man. This this (laughs) strangely enough, I I definitely know about this movie. know quite a bit about it probably too much um it starred uh, harlan williams uh as uh, uh as astronaut fred z randall this is, this is a very comedic um sci-fi movie 
but um, uh, if, I don't know, if, if I said Harlan Williams, what, what movie would you say that you would recall him from? I have no idea because I hear Rocket Man and I think of the up. I obviously, I think of the the song and then I think of the upcoming <laughs> Elton John rockumentary that's coming that's coming out this year. Uh, let's see. Um, I would say, uh, I mean, he's been in several things. Um, one of his more memorable roles maybe was in uh, uh, Down Periscope. Uh, as the uh, wait, that's uh, his. That's the memorable role. Is, is yeah. Works for the movie. I mean, it's, it's kind of required viewing for us. So. <laughs> now that I'm so, I just I just looked him up on the Google, and now I know who he is. Although that probably wouldn't have been, uh, that probably would not have been. You know, it's, as I go through his his resume on IMDb, I've seen him, but there's nothing in here. I, I think. As scary as it may sound, is employee of the month the most <laughs> the, the uh, film that I might okay. know him most from? Uh, so I and I actually see I've seen him do uh, stand up in person before okay. too. So yeah, again, I probably know too much about this film. So. <laughs> <laughs> probably be safe to just move along here. Yeah. Um, this one, this one's a little bit more um, more impressive. Uh, while not necessarily a Disney production. Uh, this uh, HBO miniseries was uh, partially filmed at the Disney MGM Studios, and that was the series from the Earth to the Moon from 1998. And this uh, this had the uh, the backing of uh, Steven Spielberg, I believe, right? Yeah. So um, it was filmed, like you said, it was filmed at um, at the studios. And I'm trying to just get the the actual year that it was it was done. Um, I, I'm sorry, you said it was 1990. Eight. And this was a Tom Hanks, I think it was a, a 12 or 13 part miniseries yes. that was filmed. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah Tom Hanks. Yeah. yeah like, obviously oh. his role from Apollo 13 and how I think that really left a, a big impression on him personally. Uh, and, and so this series was, um, I would say, filmed in a very similar manner to how the Apollo 13 film uh, was shot, but it was about um, leading up to um, the Apollo 11 launch. So, um, yeah, it's a fantastic series. Um, I, I definitely recommend uh, this series. Uh, I've got it somewhere. I think I, uh, I think I've got it on DVD somewhere. But yeah, it's it's a this is a very good series. It was very well produced. And back when the studios was actually a real working studio too. Yeah. So some history there for sure. Yeah. Um, quickly just going through some of the other ones because I want to I want to talk about the the Disney and space in terms of theme parks uh, some of the other films that get are on the list my favorite Martian now it's not the original my favorite Martian which is the one that I remember from the the 60s about this this you know Martian from uh, that lands on earth and get friends this is the one with Christopher Lloyd and and Jeff Daniels as opposed to the original that uh, again had, uh, oh God, I, his name just his name just escaped me. Um, I have to do the Google again. Um, Ray Ray Walston, Ray Walston. I, uh. I saw his face and I couldn't um, I couldn't remember his name. So he was a very very popular actor in the late six. Um, you know Ray here. I'll, I'll, you know Ray Walston from being Mister Hand at Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Oh wow! So, 
Um, so there was also Muppets from Space and Mission to Mars, the film Treasure Planet. There was an IMAX documentary called Roving Mars, which I think is is important to mention because we talked about the influence of of Walt in terms of getting us to the moon. I think this very much. I think that that influence of Walt from the fifties and sixties very much continued to uh, impact our. Uh, interest and ability and and development of the Mars rovers as well. Yeah, and of course this was uh, um, about the development, launch, and operation of the rovers Spirit and Opportunity, which my launch services program uh, launched. So, a personal connection there. And there's certainly you know Wally and I am not I am pro inhibiting you from mentioning Mars needs moms. I will not even allow it to be mentioned again um, uh, on in in the context of this. We are going to disassociate Mars needs moms from Walt Disney as much uh, as much as possible. But yeah, I, I, I read a little bit about what happened there. Yeah, yeah. I just don't rent it. Don't leave. Don't move along. Uh, but I, I really do. I want to sort of come and, and bring it sort of full circle to the attractions in the parks because again when we talk about Walt Disney and and the opening of Disneyland was this idea of allowing guests to live out what they saw on screen as being active participants in three dimensions it's why Fantasyland is based on the the animated what are now classics it's why Main Street was sort of you know Walt's memories of childhood it's why Tomorrowland was his ability to, obviously not all of us were going to be, you know, going to space like the, the Jetsons, but it was going to allow us to a certain degree live out some of these childlike or even adult-like fantasies that we had about space travel and space exploration and who or what we might experience once we got out there. Yeah, and, and it, was, it wasn't really until I started really uh writing all this down how i i really realized how much space travel is a part of tomorrowland obviously there's some 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 basic ones that stick out um you know obviously space mountain but uh how much through the years space travel has influenced tomorrowland and it makes sense because the concept of space travel is, is is exploration and the concept of exploration is that you just keep going further and there's always a new goal. There's always a new, you know, finish line. The finish line just keeps getting moved forward. So, uh, with a land like Tomorrowland, where you know they've dealt with in, throughout the history of the parks, of you know, how do we theme Tomorrowland? Uh, because eventually you get to tomorrow. So if you, th- I guess the the concept of having space travel as a as a key part of Tomorrowland. It's something where um, you can always, we're always striving for to go further, go faster, uh, and and so it, it really start. It really made sense once I really looked into it. And um, I, I also want to mention too that uh, there's a there's an actual uh, NASA connection with uh, the parks as well. In that uh, at Imagineering, uh, Gordon Cooper, who is uh, one of the original Mercury Seven astronauts. Uh, he flew on the Mercury Atlas Nine, uh, and, which was the final Mercury mission. And then he also flew on Gemini Five. 
He actually went on to become vice president uh, for research and development at WED from uh, 73 to 75. Uh, he was a part of uh, some of the Epcot development and also the uh, uh, Space Mountain development. So um, when, when you're when you're uh, riding Space Mountain, you can know that there's a little a little bit of NASA uh, uh, baked in there. So, and I think there always was, right? I think from the very beginning. So when when in 1955, when Disneyland opens, right in the middle of Tomorrowland, is this 80 foot tall rocket. I mean, it very much was meant to me not just a visual weenie, but a very symbolic centerpiece for the the Tomorrowland area and. Von Braun actually helped in the design of that rocket. And I think it was meant to not just be a a symbol a symbol and, and an attraction, but con- wanted to continue to get the guests and the visiting public excited about the the current state of and more importantly, the the future of space travel. And I think Look, and by today's standards, it it was a very simple, although in my estimation, when it came to Disney World, a believable attraction. It was something to kind of bridge the gap between what is possible and what is real and what is actually coming. And I will tell you, to sort of extend from that to flight to the moon and mission to Mars, especially here in Walt Disney World, I've said it a billion times, I totally bought into this idea of this simple attraction, this theater in the round and this feeling that the, the the seats were, were rumbling and the screens on the ceiling and the screens around that. I mean, I knew we weren't going to the moon, but I, I sort of felt that sensation of what um, uh, space travel would be like. And I think it accomplished what it set out to because it did. I mean, look, as kids, we all want to do a lot of different things growing up. You know, we want to be a fireman. We, you know, a lot of us wanted to be an astronaut. And there was that time I was like, yeah, this is what it must really be like to, to you know, fly, to, to go into space. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's amazing to see. So, so for anyone that didn't get a chance to, um, to uh, experience, you know, rocket to the moon or flight to the moon or mission to Mars. Uh, if their ex- first experience was, you know, let's say um, extraterrestrial alien encounter or Stitch's Great Escape, the uh, layout was essentially the same, except without the giant alien in the middle or the tiny alien in the middle. Uh, the concept was that uh, on the f- uh, it was on the floor in the middle, right? It was there was right. a screen, and it was basically a camera that looked straight down the rocket and so the entire room was basically the inside of the rocket and would take off and uh and so all of the uh effects from the the seat rumble and the noise and, and the lights uh it was it was essentially a simulated launch and and landing as well yeah and again you know for the time that the attraction came out and young impressionable Lou Mangello. Um, I, I absolutely loved it. And there's actually references. I, I still remember the the bird. I, you, you might not remember this, but there's a scene where sort of the bird is on the runway. We're affecting the flight path or when you're coming in for a yeah. landing or taking off. And there was actually, there's actually a reference to that um, over in currently in the queue for mission space. Oh yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yes, 
Yeah. You know, if you, well, if you look on really one of the little together, screens, that sort of that right. flying, yeah, that flying bird that gets in the way. But there, are, but you know, we talked about Space Mountain, and again, just quickly referencing Space Mountain, you know, Disney wanted to ground it in reality, so. They had, you know, astronauts in attendance. The first official ride was taken by James Irwin, who was the eighth person to walk on the moon. Um, They wanted to make sure still to that day that there was a connection. You know, Disneyland's had, you know, Mercury astronauts like Scott Carpenter and John Glenn and Alan Shepard. So there, there, there's always been this idea of of looking forward, looking into the future, the the fantastical part about, but also grounding it in reality as well. Yeah, and when uh, Disneyland, uh, when the Disneyland version had one of its reopenings, um, they actually had Neil Armstrong come for the re- for the uh, the grand reopening. It's and and. For those who don't know, Neil Armstrong didn't do a lot of personal appearances. Uh, he, that was actually pretty rare um, to to have him there. So that that was that says something about Disney that uh, that that he was willing to to come there to support that. Um, and then Buzz Aldrin um, was there for the Disneyland Paris opening. So um, uh, w- w- <laughs> actually, one little cool thing that I found too is that uh, not just astronauts but cosmonauts. Have actually visited um, Space Mountain. There's a, this really cool picture of a group of astronauts and cosmonauts uh, here at the Magic Kingdom, and uh, when they were uh, preparing for the Apollo Soyuz missions uh, or the the joint missions in space. So uh, that was a very cool moment in history as well that uh, was experienced uh, right here at uh, Magic Kingdom. Yeah, and obviously, you know, there's there's other smaller touch points that that maybe are not as immersive or interactive, like the Star Jets. Astro Orbit or Astro Jets, Tomorrowland Jets, whatever you want to call them. There are many different names. Uh, Alien Encounter uh, certainly <laughs> was a very darker side to our future of space exploration. We mentioned the Flying Saucers, um, uh, rocket, ro- rocket Rods, the, the two or three days that they worked, um, <laughs> Space Station X-1. Obviously in Epcot, you know, certainly we go. Well, I think before we even get to Mission Space, you know, we think about the, the space scene in things like um, Horizons, but yes. even before we get to the attractions, you know, um, um, there was that same thing, this idea of looking towards the future, not necessarily even into space, but grounding in reality. That's why people like, you know, science fiction writers like Bray Bad- Ray-, Ray Bradbury, I speak for a living, I swear, Ray Bradbury <laughs> were, were um, integral into the design and, and the conceptualization of the 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 attractions and the park itself yeah that's a great point i I didn't include that in my notes as well yeah but yeah ray bradbury was a very big part of of the uh epcot and uh of uh spaceship earth's uh development process of course for those who don't know ray bradbury is the uh, the man behind star trek so uh a very uh more so science uh factual type show more so than like a uh, like star wars which is much more fantasy based um uh so yeah that's a very very good point at uh that he was a part of that um the, about that development i um i remember my my ray bradbury connection is the martian chronicles um it was a book but it was also a it was a tv special way back in i guess it was the Probably mid to late 70s which i've not been able to find again on any sort of of um 
digestible medium, but I was fascinated by his view and then the interpretive view on screen of, of what life on Mars and what uh, space travelers to and from Mars would um, would look like. Uh, and again, there were other smaller touch points. Obviously, Mission Space, you know, we've done, uh, we've talked about Mission Space and that attraction as a whole without going too very deep into it. But again, Ryan, this very much talks about not just, and, and I love the way Mission Space does it in terms of giving us the opportunity to experience these simulators. Gary Sinise, I, I miss you and I love you, brother. But it's it also very much grounds us in the 29 right the 29 missions that are um designated on the sphere outside not just by the US but by the Soviet Union as well and even when you look at the the visual representation of the history of space travel on the walls it takes you back to the reality of the history of space travel and a fantasy future history of you know families going to space and exploration of mars and and other um um, other you know celestial bodies yeah this one i think that's what's really interesting about this attraction is that it it is really grounded in 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 history in fact in that that um you feel like uh that there's you can feel some some real life I guess non-Disney history there that that um, actions that were taken in the past by by great people from around the world have all helped to develop uh, this I would say this attraction, but this this concept that is being highlighted in this attraction, and that uh, these concepts are going to be continued to be addressed going forward uh, by companies that right now there's companies out there that that are you know, are planning this stuff right now that, uh, you know, that they, they want to put, uh, like you said, families on, on, uh, these different planets. So, um, it is, uh, it is very exciting. And when we, we, when we mentioned Epcot and we mentioned this attraction and we, and I did a very long detailed look, a DSI Disney scene investigation of mission space back on show 420. But if we're going to talk about, you know, attractions and space, Lest we forget, and I and I think I talk about this in the Mission Space Show, plans for Epcot from the very beginning always included a space-themed pavilion. And when Horizons closed in 1999, those original plans, however different they became and changed over the years, those sort of plans for that space-themed pavilion became a reality when Mission Space opened in the location of uh of horizon so in that show we do a very comprehensive look at at the history of the pavilion itself as well as the stories and the tributes uh in the pre-show the attraction and the post-show as well yeah and of course yeah for those you know lucky enough to have experienced horizons obviously that was a a great attraction uh but uh you know it's it was sad to see it go but I think um, the uh, the amount that Mission Space brings to uh, the guests at Epcot, the amount of um, uh, real life hard work that's that's highlighted uh, by by this attraction, the real life hard work by so many people, uh, as you can see on the on the the moon um, model that they have out front and all those plaques that they have out front, you can see these are real people that really did this stuff. 
Um, and, and it's, it's almost like a dedication to all of that hard work. So, and, and we, I think we really look forward to putting some new, some new plaques out there and some new, uh, some new moon landing sites on the, on that, uh, that big uh, moon globe out there. So um, I, I also should mention too, I actually, when I was a, when I was an engineer there, I actually uh, did my own calculations of G forces on the, uh, <laughs> uh, just because, you know, that's what I would do. Uh, so I, I figured out it's, it's about two G's uh, that you experience, um, which is pretty similar. It, I mean, it's not a lot. It's, it's pretty similar to what you would experience on the space shuttle at the time. So, um, because it, it experienced relatively low G's for space travel, um, as opposed to like the, uh, the Apollo, uh, capsules when they were coming into the atmosphere, they were, they were definitely getting up there like uh, six ish G's. Wow. Um, so yeah, they, they were experiencing a, a little bit more, uh, a little bit more force, but, uh, um, yeah, so that was, that was one of the, uh, fun little things I did when I was an engineer there. I, I, I got a lot of stories of Space Mountain and stuff too, but uh, save those for another time. Well, and look, I, I think sort of, you know, bringing things full circle um, from its beginnings with Walt, you know, the, the young boy fascinated with this idea of space travel to where we are today. I mean, I think, you know, Disney and NASA still have uh, relationships beyond just hey we're at Disney World for a week we should and you should if you haven't before the 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 Space Center is not a far trip from Walt Disney World and it's worthwhile going to see I'm going to take my kids again this summer because I haven't had a chance to see it um, in in a long time but there still is a relationship between the two um, in fact Disney actually has astronauts and people who are certified in on uh, on staff and as cast members to ensure that these attractions, that these narrations, that the scripts and what we're reading are accurate um, and are representative of real life experiences. So I think that, you know, staff from NASA and Disney engineers and experts continually work together, um, not just on, you know, simulation technology in the parks but but training programs for nasa um as well and if you've never seen by the way a space shuttle or well in the day if you never saw a a a launch um from walt disney world um a lot of times being in such close proximity you can get some pretty uh pretty cool views from the parks and resorts yeah it's very true yeah um yeah if, if you're not able to because it's about an hour away uh, from Walt Disney World, if you're here visiting, um, to get over to the Kennedy Space Center Visitor Center, uh, and you can spend an entire day um, over at uh, the Space Center, and if you want to um, go over to the uh, Cape Canaveral um, Air Force Station side, uh, there's a, there's you can easily spend an entire day over there. Um, so if you if you're able to, there's it's it's uh, you know we obviously are very keen to. Uh, spreading the word about all of the uh, the great work that we are doing there, and and uh, um, you know getting our, our buy in. It's it's not uh, the hardest thing to do. NASA is a is a pretty good. Uh, I don't want to say it's a brand, but it's a pretty good brand. Um, but uh, uh, you know, it's it's. I, I joke that uh, you know you can't go to uh, you can't go to the the department store and buy you know Department of the Interior socks. 
but you can get NASA socks. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, so no, it's, it's, um, yeah. So yeah, if you, if you can't make it all the way over, um, yeah, if you're, if you're around for a launch, uh, we're right now, we're about monthly, uh, where we have launches. So if you're here, you know, there's a pretty decent chance that you might see one. You can easily see it from, uh, Walt Disney world property. Uh, as long as it's a, it's a clear day, you can see it during the day or at night. And, um, uh, yeah, we've got a lot going on over there right now. We've got, uh, our commercial crew program that we're, uh, um, spooling up right now. Uh, we're going to be spent sending our astronauts back to the space station off of, uh, American soil. So we're really looking forward to that. We, we, my, me personally, and in my group, we've been helping out with that a lot. Uh, we've, our, our next big launch services program mission, I would say is probably Mars 2020 as that's our next Rover, uh, on the surface of Mars. Um, the space launch system is, is slated for next year for, for launch. That's our next major, uh, NASA rocket. That's going to be bigger than the Saturn V rocket. Um, that's the one that'll take us to the moon. Speaking of the moon, we've got uh, lunar gateway. That's the, um, uh, lunar space station that we're that I've, I was actually working on earlier today. Um, and uh, who wasn't know, really? I mean, who wasn't working on the lunar space station earlier today? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I really I have to pinch myself on pretty much a daily basis that I, I get to do this stuff. Um, and then, uh, you know, returning to the moon, we've been tasked by uh, uh, by uh, the president to uh, return to the moon by 2024. So very busy right now over there. So, um, but yeah, all the support from, uh, from all the listeners out there, not just in the U S but around the world. Uh, that's the amazing part about it too, is, is, uh, NASA is, is something that is appreciated by not just, not just Americans. It's, it's really, it's around the world. So, um, you know, uh, all the support we can get, uh, from, from everybody is, is very much appreciated. Well, it's, you know, like I said, bringing things in, in, full orbit to use the uh to use the lingo is you know i I think going back to those 50s the the 50s and and walt's vision of the future he took those initial steps towards his visions of tomorrow and tomorrowland by bringing these concepts to television and in a marriage that worked well for both Von Braun and for Disney in terms of, I don't want to say capitalizing, but I think a recognition of the current state of the public perception and and interest in space travel and Von Braun and Disney recognizing the power of this relatively new medium to further interest, um, not just from a consumer, but from even the you know the 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 government itself's point of view um they truly influenced not just the public perception of rockets and space travel and altered them from being you know the flying rockets of flash gordon to really where we are today um and i think that that both Von Braun and certainly Walt's influence on the space program continues to be helped, uh, continues to be recognized. And, and I, and I wanted to make sure, and I think that's why this, I I like this topic so much was bringing something that maybe was, um, uh, not a lot of people knew about, you know, when we talk about Walt and, and his contributions, 
it's important for me that people understand that they are beyond what was put on film and what is created in the theme parks, but even more so um, things that we now uh, almost to a certain degree, look, you know, they're, they're, they're um, Elon Musk. They're, they're launching, you know, (laughs) spaceships almost every week. It seems like Um, it's almost become uh, par for the course, you know, to see, to see um, rockets go up. And, um, and lest we forget that Walt, you know, however you want to, Categorize Walt may or may not um, have had a, a a big or a small influence on where we are today and where we may be going tomorrow. Uh, Ryan, man, I appreciate you not only suggesting the title, but your friendship and obviously all of the knowledge and uh, nerdy expertise that you brought to this topic today. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, it absolutely was, and and you're absolutely right. You know, I, I think Walt was there at the beginning uh, personally to really help. Uh, the American public uh, appreciate uh, the the concept of of, of human spaceflight, um, and and his impact continues to live on today. I, I'm I'm a product of it. I mean, some all these attractions that we've talked about, the the movies, uh, all of that has been such a, a big impact on my life uh, is, uh, to as an appreciation for. Uh, space travel and space flight and uh, I, I, I'm appreciative uh, for, for everything that, uh, that he's done for um, for all this. I, I'm at, obviously I'm at a loss of words so it's uh, uh, yeah it's, it's, I'm, I'm very grateful for, for all of it for sure. Well then maybe it's appropriate to, to end off as, as we began with with part of Walt's opening dedication for Tomorrowland where he said, Tomorrow offers new frontiers in science, adventure, and ideals, the challenge of outer space, and the hope for a peaceful and unified world. Ryan, thank you so much, brother. I want to hear from you, our friend, the listener, your thoughts about Disney and space. Walt, your favorite space-themed attraction in Walt Disney World. You can go to wdwradio.com slash community. That'll take you to our Box People group. You can share your thoughts there. And uh, Ryan, my friend, thank you again. I hope to see you again soon. See you soon. It's time for our Walt Disney World trivia question of the week, where I invite you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World's history or see how well you pay attention to the details, sometimes in what you see or hear, And if you think you know the answer, you can enter via our online form for a chance to win a Disney prize package. Before we get to this week's question, we're going to go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So last time we talked about Star Wars Celebration. This week we're talking about space. It all sort of fits in perfectly together. Because last week I asked you, what was your flight number on Star Tours? Now, obviously, on Star Tours, the adventure continues. Your destination changes every time you ride. However, your flight number actually remains the same. And that number is 1401. Now, what's the significance? Because obviously, everything means something. 1401 is the address for Walt Disney Imagineering. It's 1401 Flower Street in Glendale, California. And of course, this is one of many, many references, not just to Imagineering, but Imagineers, their families, birth dates, room numbers, phone numbers, 
the Star Trek Enterprise. See if you can find that one and many more. Anyway, I took all of the correct entries, randomly selected one, and last week you were playing for all of my digital products, which is my 102 ways to save money for an at Walt Disney World book, all seven of my virtual audio walking tours of the Magic Kingdom history, secrets, and stories, which you can find, by the way, on Amazon and in iTunes and at www.radio.com. I'm also going to send you a WW Radio vinyl sticker and a pop socket for your phone. And last week's winner, randomly selected, is... Jim Bulyemi. So, Jim, you use the online form. I have your shipping information. I will get your prize package at you right away. If you played last week and didn't win, that's okay. Because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So, again, we're talking about space, and I got to thinking more about Star Tours and when the attraction first opened. And did you know that back in 1986, which I realize as I think about that is way longer ago than it seems in my own mind. Anyway, in order to celebrate the opening of Star Tours in Disneyland, Disney aired a TV special, as long as we're talking about Disney and space and TV. Disney aired a TV special that starred Buck Rogers, Gil Gerard, and a young martial artist and actor by the name of Ernie Reyes Jr. Or if you grew up in the 80s, you knew exactly who both of those two people were. Anyway, the special showed how Star Tours was created, and as well as the history of space travel and some other references to space-related movies, much like what we're talking about this week. Of course, things got very interesting when C-3PO and R2-D2 showed the Star Tours attraction and the Star Speeder. We won't get into any of the weird music and 80s rap-ish version stuff. Anyway, your question this week is to simply tell me, what was this 1986 Disneyland Star Tours special event cavalcade TV special called? And I'll give you a hint. If you go back to WDW Radio show number 68, speaking of blasts from the past, I do a DSI of Star Tours where we get into a very detailed history of the attraction, the story, a very, very geeky look at the queue and the shop, and even some predictions as to what the future may hold. I'm not sure if I want to go back and hear how right or wrong I was. Anyway, that will give you some hints. But anyway, tell me what was this 1986 Disneyland TV special called to commemorate the and celebrate the launch of Star Tours in Disneyland. You have until Sunday, May 12th at 11.59 p.m. to go to www.radio.com, click on this week's podcast. There you will find the form. And again, you're going to play for all the digital products, the book, the audio tours, the vinyl sticker, the pop socket. And just because I am nerding out on Star Wars, Star Tours, and space, I'm also going to send you a WW Radio shirt as well. So good luck, may the Force and the Schwartz be with you, and have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you so very much for taking the time to tune in this and every week. I would love to continue the conversation. More importantly, to have you be part of our WW Radio family and community. Go join our Box People group over on Facebook at www.radio.com slash community. You can also connect with me on social. I am Lou Mangello on Facebook. Well, I'm Lou Mangello everywhere, but I'm Lou Mangello on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I also want to thank everybody who is part of our WW Radio Nation family. I sincerely, sincerely appreciate your love and your support and your friendship and help. And I love being able to not only thank you, but give back to you each and every month. 
I also want to thank some of the new members who've joined the hundreds of you who are part of the Nation family this month, including Taylor Roberts, Ava Rose Carsley, Stephanie Vink, Stephen Schools, and Justin Barton. And if you want to not only help the show, and it really is a huge help to the show, but also receive exclusive rewards every month, including scavenger hunts, we have a private Facebook group, custom magic band covers, logo gear, t-shirts, backpacks, care packages every month from Walt Disney World, exclusive live monthly video group calls, and early exclusive access to special events. Thanks to all of you who are coming to our Epcot Forever dessert party, by the way. There's also lots more. To find out more, find out how you can help the show, visit www.radio.com support. Also, don't forget that a portion of your contributions do go to the Dream Team Project to benefit the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America. You can be part of the Nation family for as little as a dollar a month. Again, for more information and to sign up, visit www.radio.com support. If you have a question you want me to answer on the air, you can email me, lou at www.radio.com, or better yet, be heard on the air. Call the voicemail at 407-900-9391. That's 407-900-WDW1. And of course, as much as I love connecting with you online and in social, nothing beats a handshake and a hug. It's why I continue to do Meets of the Month every month in Walt Disney World. Stay tuned to our events page at www.radio.com slash events as well as the show to find out when our next May Meet of the Month will be. You'll also find out about upcoming special events including our WDW Radio Adventures by Disney to Japan. We still have one spot left. Our cruise out of New Orleans in February. More announcements coming very, very soon. Again, visit www.radio.com slash events. Also stay tuned as I'll be doing additional meetups, not necessarily in the Disney parks, but as I travel to speak and for events and to find out how I can come to speak to your conference, your business, your event, or your school, visit loumangelo.com. And also, I would love to help work with you to turn what you love into what you do. So whether you have an idea, a blog, a YouTube channel, a brick and mortar business, or just an idea, There's lots of different ways I can help from one-on-one coaching to a small mastermind group that meets virtually every week. I also have one spot left for my Momentum Weekend Retreat this May 31st through June 2nd here in Orlando. And there's also my Momentum Weekend Workshop September 28th and 29th again here in Walt Disney World. To find out more, visit loumangelo.com or just shoot me an email, lou at www.radio.com. I also want to thank, of course, Becky Mankin and the entire team over at Mouse Fan Travel. Whether you're traveling to any Disney destination or anywhere on the planet, they can give you the best possible prices, all available discounts, all at no cost to you. You can visit them over at mousefantravel.com and stay tuned. Speaking of Mouse Fan Travel and live video, be sure to turn on notifications because you, might, you, you never know where we might be live broadcasting from this week stay tuned to the box people group on facebook as well as the ww radio page and also be sure and check out celebrations magazine over at celebrationspress.com and as always my friend and you are my friend whether we have met yet or not all i ask is that if you like the show please just help spread the word invite your friends to join our friends to be part of the community to check out the show so if you can tweet out that you're listening to this or your favorite episode share it on facebook and if you can Take 30 seconds to just rate and review the show over on iTunes. It's incredibly helpful. I want to thank some recent reviewers like JDKOCJ, Jen DJD, that's what it says, who says it's my favorite podcast. I've loved Disney and the Disney parks since I was a child. 
I discovered Lou during his previous podcast and had followed ever since WW Radio episode one. Wow. It is by far the best podcast out there on any topic. Wow. But since it's Disney, it makes it even better. The food reviews are great. The top tens are always fun. The DSIs, the Wayback Machines are great learning experiences. It's a must for any Disney lovers. Degata says it's the most magical podcast on the internet. Lou is a gem. The enthusiasm translates to every level of fandom. It's never boring, always interesting and educational. Plus, you always feel better after listening, which is exactly how I want you to feel. M Slate 61 says your show is amazing. I'm a new listener and regret not finding it sooner. That's the beauty of the podcast. M Slate, you can go back, listen, uh, maybe not episode one. Episode one was not my best work. Anyway, Matthew W77 says not only the best Disney podcast, but one of the best podcasts, period. And Deshar says, I love it. I just started listening, though. I know Lou on Facebook. We've met in person totally by accident. He says, I've just never been a podcast person. Now I listen whenever I can. Lots to learn about. Something I thought I knew so well. And Lou and his guests are so positive and fun. Deshar, Matthew, M. Slate, Zagata, and JDK. So Jen, DJD, you know who you are. Thank you. Thank all of you uh, for taking the time to listen and rate and review. Again, just search for WDW Radio and iTunes or go to www.radio.com slash iTunes. It'll give you a link and show you exactly how to do it. Finally, most importantly, again, thank you to you for taking the time to listening, for sharing, for being part of the community, and honestly, for being my friend. And we truly are friends, whether we have met yet or not. And I do hope that while this podcast does make you happy and does help you escape and have you a be- give you a better experience when you go, I really do hope that it does have, however big or small, a positive impact on you and your life. And yeah, you know what? If it puts a smile on your face, well, then mission accomplished, I guess. I hope that you have your best week ever. If there's ever anything I can do for you to help repay the favor and the gift that you give me, please let me know. Have a great week. So until next time, see ya. Hi, Lou. It's Elizabeth from Massachusetts. It is Wednesday morning at 6.33 a.m. I'm about to head to work on um, April 24th, I think. Um, and just recently I had my April break, listened to a bunch of your shows, and um, I just started listening to episodes of Tim Foster. We were doing a top ten on the ride vehicles in Disney World, and I'm super excited to finish it on my own home today. Um, but one that I just recently listened to, and the number of it is totally escaping me, was the best seats in Walt Disney World. And one that I wish I was going to sit on right now, and that I know is not mentioned, and it's probably not many of anyone, is the curb on Main Street. So not necessarily a bench, but I would do a lot right now at 6.33 in the morning to go grab my coffee, sit on the corner of Main Street, right outside Casey's Corner, so you can see the castle, do some people watching, um, let the sun come on up, and start a magical day. Um, so, yep, I hope you all have a magical day, and I will talk to you real soon. Thanks. Bye. Hey, Lou, this is Jen Coyle, and I have a little song rap for you. <clears throat> Lou Mangello, he's a magical fellow. Doing a Disney podcast, you like I scored a fast pass. Yeah, I'm listening from Milwaukee. 
Ooh, and I hope someday that that he and I will meet at a meet of the month. I'll give him a hug because I like him so much. Thanks, Lou, for always being an inspiration. And you and I have never met yet, but I know we are friends. I'll be down there in August. Hope to see you. Love, Jen. Hi, Lou. It's Elizabeth again from Massachusetts. Second time state calling on Wednesday, April 24th. Just got home from work and finished your episode 164. Uh, yeah, I think 164, where you and Jim Buster did the top 10 ride vehicles, and it was so good. I love those episodes that you guys do. Um, some that I think I could think of right away, too, uh, for sentimental reasons, I absolutely love the teacups. Um, they're also super fun to Instagram and put on social media. Um, I also think that a lot of times the Kilimanjaro Safari vehicles don't get enough credit. Those things are massive um, and certainly not probably the easiest things to maneuver through the actual attraction. Um, and, of course, um, right along with Soren, like you guys have talked about for a little bit on the show, uh, the new Avatar uh, Flight of Passage, the technology behind that is just unreal. Um, so yeah, it was a super fun show. Thanks for getting me through my Wednesday. Hope you're all having a magical day, and talk to you soon. Bye. Hello, it's Darlene Nagy from West Seneca, New York, calling in to say that I have 41 days until my trip to Florida again and hoping to see the last day of Flower and Garden at Epcot. I hope you all get a chance to go there. Then we have... A few more days until the Lou and Becky Adventures by Disney to Japan, and that's 173 days. Oh, my goodness. Then there's, of course, the New Orleans cruise, which is going to be out of New Orleans with the WDW Radio Group, and that's 289 days only away. Now, don't forget there's also the D23 Expo in August, and then Memento is in September for all those attending that one. So you all have a magical week, and love and hugs to all. Thank you, Lou, for everything you do. Don't you remember yesterday I was saying to you that tomorrow we might go to future world? Yes. Huh? Yes. What? Yes. Yes, of course. Well, today is the tomorrow I was talking about yesterday. And tomorrow, yesterday, will be today. And I got to the future from the past when the past became the present, which is now. <laughs> you get it? Got it. Good. Did you explain it to me? 